you remember when you went through baptism class and you had to write out your personal testimony? There are four parts to it. You know, what, what I was like, what God used to begin to open my eyes, the second one. The third one you would write on is you know, what I saw or understood. And then the fourth thing was you know, how Christ has and is affecting my life. So that would be kind of like the helpful template to you know, writing your personal testimony, which was more less a testimony about you and more a testimony about you know, what Jesus had done in your life and saving you. And as we turn to Exodus 18 this morning, in a way, that's also exactly what Moses is doing with his father-in-law, Jethro. In a sense, he's you know, talking about his baptism, but rather, you know, into or through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And it was a testimony of what the Lord had done in Moses' life. And as we approach Exodus 18, I want you to remember the theme of the whole Bible. What is, there's a lot of ways you could express the theme of the Bible, of the whole Bible, but who knows how I have taught the, the theme of the whole Bible. So she got the glory word, and it's, there's a different R word. Yeah, the glory of God in the reign of God. Now, when we're talking about God's glory, it's about his attributes and activities. When we're talking about his reign, we're talking about you know, his kingdom and his covenants. And if you want that in a nifty little chart document, you can just let me know. I can send it to you in an email. But think about that in relation to the book of Exodus. You know, what, what is the theme and purpose of the book of Exodus? Yeah, it's to reveal God's name, which is his glory. It's who he is. And in particular, what we're going to see here in Exodus 18 is that the Lord is a deliverer who delivers. So it's, you know, who, you know, attribute is deliverer, his activity is he delivers. And what he has done at this point in Exodus, he, he has delivered the sons of Israel, and he's been teaching them the nature of the law, which he's about to, to give once we transition to getting to Sinai. You know, all of this wilderness wandering is preparation for Sinai and the receiving of the law. And as we've been studying together, we've seen that the God has been teaching them the nature of the law, that it instructs, just like that word Torah was used. And when the Lord pointed Moses to the tree, as the word, he uh, Torahed him to a tree. He pointed out, you know, the sinfulness of the people and that they were complaining about the water, but he pointed to God's goodness and that God made the bitter water sweet. That's what the law does. It, it points out our sinfulness, and it points to God's goodness. 
and that he's the only one that can save you. And we see that this law has both negative and positive effects. So the negative effect is in chapter 17 when it points out the deserved destruction of the Amalekites. When we come to chapter 18, it points to Yahweh as a deliverer and specifically for Jethro, which is interesting to read in the story where you hear it starts with, you know, they come out of the water of the Red Sea and then they complain about the water being bitter, but they don't appeal to the Lord of the water. And then we come back full circle again. They don't have any water. And I think, well, what's the deal? Like, what, you know, is anybody going to believe or listen to Yahweh and everything that's going on here? And I see that the nature of the law to instruct others, that that instruction that was refused by Israel actually goes out and is believed by Gentile Jethro. And this is kind of the conclusion, the surprise conclusion to the episode here. And Jethro ends up recognizing Yahweh's delivering plan. And Yahweh, or Jethro blesses the Lord and he recognizes his greatness in Exodus 18. So God uses the sons of Israel to teach yet Jethro. And then after Jethro blesses Yahweh and blesses the sons of Israel, he, he ends up blessing them by teaching them something. He, it's like, hey, everything's getting like reversed and flipped around here. And so what you see with this issue with, you know, the Amalekites and Jethro, this Midianite, is that God is setting up Israel for an international impact. And this plan is so big that Moses can't care for all of it by himself. He's going to have to delegate the responsibility. It can't all ride on his shoulders because Israel is becoming a a nation that's so great, it's going to need more than, than one guy to lead it. And so this sets up for God's law instruction that's going to come at Sinai, that they would learn from it and it would be taught to the world. So let's look at Exodus 18, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 12 this morning. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was camped at the Mount of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, 
Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods, for in this matter they acted presumptuously against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, Jethro isn't the first priest that we meet in the Bible. Can you think of a, another priest who talked to another Hebrew guy? Yeah, Melchizedek, or just Mel for short. Yeah. Yeah, and what, what was the purpose of the priest? I mean, how did he function? What did he you know, do in the life of Abraham? Yeah, that would, be, that would be part of it. I mean, you see, the major thing that he did was he instructed him. And he taught him about who the, the king of righteousness was who would reign over the place of peace. Uh, which it tells you all that stuff in Hebrews when it talks about, you know, Melchizedek, you know, which translated means king of righteousness. His name was meant to teach something and that, you know, he would be, you know, the prince over Salem, which Salem translated it means peace. You know, Salem or Shalem, Shalom, and which would later be known as Jerusalem, which means pillar of peace. And this guy was a Midianite, and which means he was you know, a, a Gentile. He was the one to whom the blessing of Abraham would extend as God had promised that God would make Abraham's name great by making him into a great nation that would bless all of the other nations. And this guy was a father-in-law to Moses of all people. You know, one of the things you see within uh, the, the sons of Israel is there's a lot of mixture of Gentiles. I mean, even think about this group of, you know, the sons of Israel that are being addressed. Uh, there's a bunch of Egyptians that are with them. You know, they came out, there was a mixed multitude that went out from Egypt. And then even when you have, you know, Moses within the family line of the Levites, he has a Midianite wife. And so this blessing was always, you know, intended to extend to the Gentiles, and you're seeing this happening very early on in Scripture. Now, with Jethro, one of the subtle things that you see that happens with him is after you know, Moses, there was a point where he had sent uh, Zipporah and his sons, Gershom and Eliezer, away and all of the events that were occurring and the Exodus. And what Jethro does is what Pharaoh didn't. So we've already been seeing this contrast in that the Israelites are like Pharaoh and that the Lord gives them instruction 
And they just, they don't believe it. They won't listen to it. They think God's evil They're, and their hearts are hardened. But the Pharaoh who wouldn't send out God's people to worship, Jethro's doing that with Moses' family. He's sending out Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer to worship in the wilderness to join with Moses. And this word, when it says that Jethro heard all that God had done, this is that word that's also translated listen. It's the word shema. Jethro did what a lot of other people weren't doing. He he listened to the Lord. He, He heard what Israel had been deaf to, even though they're the ones who actually lived through it. And even though he didn't see it, you know, blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. This was something that Jethro had heard about. He had heard about the Exodus event. And how do you suppose that, I mean, he heard about such an event? It was a big deal, you know, when you have massive plagues happening. You see a a pillar of fire, you know, peeling out through the desert. Like, you know something's going on out there. Uh, And people had heard, and a lot of them had seen that, you know, the, the greatest superpower on the planet had been destroyed, and all of the slaves walked out from it. Well, what's going on? There's not a lot else going on around the planet. There is kind of Egypt. They're right next to the river that gives, you know, fertility to where you can actually grow food and eat food. Then outside of that, it's just desolation, you know, mostly. So it's, you know, a lot, the world really centered around Egypt and its commerce in a lot of ways. So this was, you know, not something that went unnoticed. Uh, you know, everybody was affected by it somehow. And you see how Moses didn't, you know, come to explaining Jethro what God had done with like ambiguous Christian contemporary songs that just talk about you, 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 you. I was like, well, who's you? Well, the you has a name. It's it's Yahweh. So Jethro knows who it is that Moses is talking about specifically. You know, he heard not just any God did this, but Yahweh alone had brought Israel out of Egypt. It wasn't one of the gods of Egypt or some great leader named Moses. He recognizes to some degree that God is one. You know, this, this God, Yahweh, there's nobody like him. He's in a category of his own. Uh, he's greater than all the gods. You know, he, he knows him by name. And Jethro was caring for Moses' wife and his two grandsons. And his, the names of his grandsons were a personal testimony of deliverance. So you remember we talked about the, you know, the, the baptism class when you try to write out your personal testimony. You know, the first question was, you know, what I was like. And, you know, that's answered with Moses' first son. It's like, well, what was I like? I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
That's what I was like. The second question, you know, what God used to begin to open my eyes? He said, that's his second son, Eliezer. He says, the God of my father was my help. That's how he began to open my eyes. And he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So even for Grandpa Jethro to call out the names of his grandsons, was it was a gospel testimony of God's deliverance just to call them in the tent for dinner at the end of the day, which I guess he did. I mean, they did. Supper was a deal that they did. We know that. And that's how Moses you know, got connected to Zipporah and they got married and all of that. This was a testimony which Jethro would hear about but he also believed as he encamped at the mountain where the sons of Israel wouldn't listen or believe. So you want to think about the geography here. Uh, in verse 5, so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the mount of God. So you say, we're back here at the Mount of God. What are some things that happened here at the Mount of God? Yeah, burning bush. This is where, you know, the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And then after you get on the other side of the Red Sea, where does Israel end up at? Yeah, same place, you know, at the Mount of God where God reveals himself. And... Now here we are again you know, at the Mount of God and he reveals himself to Jethro and Jethro believes. So you're seeing this, this is how you know, the law works. It, it points to God's salvation, that you need salvation in him. And this is the place where God's faithfulness is revealed and the unfaithfulness of Israel. You see, God always provided for them everything they needed. And even when they were grumpy, he graciously provided what they needed. But he was pointing out that he was faithful and gracious, but that they were unfaithful and grumblers. Verse 7. This is what Jethro and Moses asked each other. They asked each other of their shalom. It says welfare. It's the word shalom and peace, and which is a significant word through Scripture. And men who had come into knowing peace with God to not be at enmity with him, and they went into the tent. So you think about this is kind of like a preface to you know, the holy tent that's going to be built in the future, the tent where God's presence with God's people would be revealed. And that's exactly what they talked about in the tent was the presence of God with God's people. And after sharing a warm and joyous reunion, it says, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh. So you see here his personal testimony continues. You know, this is the what I saw, what I understood, he recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how 
Yahweh had delivered them. Now this word recount is significant as it's you know, the purpose of why all of these events happened. I want you to see that building in Exodus. I turn to Exodus 9.16. Somebody read Exodus 9.16 for us. I say Genesis or Exodus? A wonderful verse. Exodus 9.16. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name to all the earth. Yeah. So what is it that's to be recounted or proclaimed? Right? He's saying, he's... You know, this is being you know, spoken to Pharaoh. It says, for this reason, yeah, you know, I, Yahweh, have caused you, Pharaoh, to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. That's why all this stuff has happened. And you see it, it's extended, you know, uh, to recount my name through all the earth, not just some of it, not just in, in Egypt, but now we've seen it's extended out to the Midianites. Also read 10, 2, chapter 10, verse 2. Somebody want to read that? So the word this in this instance they were they translate the word recount as tell in your in your ESV. But recount, tell, proclaim, synonyms, right? And it says, Well, all of these things happened in Egypt that you may recount in the hearing of your son and your grandson. You see that this would be heard by future generations, how I dealt with the Egyptians and how I put my signs among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So again, you're seeing this is the purpose of Exodus, to reveal the name of God and what he had done. And we're seeing that's continuing to build to, to Pharaoh, saying to recount my name through all the earth for Israel, to that you may recount it to your children what happened in Egypt, that they will also know that I am Yahweh. Now, Jethro, when he heard about all of these things, now remember, he didn't live through them, he just heard about them, but he didn't respond like the Israelites and say, well, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that Yahweh brought them into the wilderness to die? He also, it doesn't say that, you know, and Jethro grumbled over all the badness which Yahweh had done to Israel. But instead, Gentile Jethro ends up having the response that Israel should have had. And verse 9, 18, 9, 
says Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness. Yeah, he didn't hear everything that happened. I, Moses told him the bad stuff, the hard things. He told him about the water and the bread and the meat and all of that sort of stuff. But the way that you know Jethro takes all of this, God is good. He's good to wicked people. And so he's you see this you know instruction that comes with God's relationship to Israel and that it communicates the goodness of God to Jethro. And so he rejoices over the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. So he says, this was for deliverance. You know, it wasn't for death. Uh, he's seeing things rightly, and you know, that's the point of this section. That's one of the reasons we see the word delivered repeated over and over and over. You know, he didn't see it as an affliction, but a deliverance, a freedom from slavery in Egypt to the type of new slavery that they would have unto Yahweh. And really the main point of this section here in Exodus 18 is summed up in verses 10 through 11. If you want to look at those with me, back in chapter 18, verses 10 through 11. So Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians from and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods, for in this matter, they acted presumptuously against the people. Now, this is the main point that, you know, when, when Yahweh blesses a people, they would bless him back. You know, there would be rejoicing. There would be praise unto him for his deliverance. And we know that, you know, as we've thought about the Abrahamic covenant, a lot of times we've looked at that statement about how God promised he would curse those who curse you. We see that with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but we don't want to also fail to see that other part of the promise, I will bless those who bless you being carried out. And that's happening here with Jethro. Now he, he's blessing God and he's going to be a blessing to their people by giving Moses some good counsel, which we'll look at next week. And you see, in contrast, this is the response that Amalek should have had. Yeah, instead of you know, looking at Israel and saying, ah, here's a bunch of grumbling people out in the wilderness. Looks like a good time to attack. But instead, Jethro is remembering, ah, but the, you know, Yahweh who did that stuff in the plagues and provided all this stuff in the wilderness. Like, you don't go to war with them. You know, you, you bless them for his greatness and what he has done. And he says, now I know that Yahweh is greater. Now, this isn't, you know, a, a word for just knowing the facts, but it's a word that's used of, like, when, you know, Adam knew his wife, like he knew her in relationship, you know, experientially. This is the kind of word that he's using here. Uh, Sarah, you can take this Hebrew word back to your husband. It is yada. Which kind of sounds like ta-da, which is how I memorized it in my vocabulary so many years ago. But yada 
It's, uh, you know, it's like, ta-da, you have a relationship with God. But it's yada. <laughs> and he says, what, what he learns here, Yahweh is greater than all the gods. Now you remember, this guy's a priest of Midian. So he, he was a priest of false gods. And now things are changing in his life where he's saying, Yahweh is greater than, than all of them. Uh, not do I, I don't only just know about him from hearing these things, but like I've, I've come to know him, his attributes and his activities to some degree. And so the way that he responds in verse 12 is by offering burnt sacrifices or burnt offerings and sacrifices, you know, which were sacrifices of, to show one's whole life being dedicated out of gratitude to the one that they're offering it to. And so what happens with the burnt offering? Well, I mean, one, why do you cook meat anyways? It's not because you want to show gratitude to people because you love them, right? That's why we do barbecues or cookouts. Barbecue is a type of food, by the way. It's not an event. Cookout is an event. Barbecue is a type of food. <laughs> this will not be overcome in this region in which I live. But. <laughs> Yes. Not all things are monolithic, but that particular thing from Texas, I think, is. Otherwise, they boot you out. <laughs> we also, it being a burnt offering, that the whole thing was burnt up. It was it, you know, the the thing in its entirety. So it was a communication of, you know one's entire life being given in gratitude to the one that the offering was being given, which this is something of a precursor of that being explicitly stated with the burnt offerings in Leviticus. And they also share a fellowship meal. You know, this was similar with uh, Melchizedek as well with Abraham. You know, he instructs them and teaches them something and they have a fellowship meal afterwards. Same thing here with Jethro and Moses. You know, there's a sharing of these offerings and sacrifices and a, and a fellowship meal together. Now, what we're seeing is that, you know, the outworking of what we read, that you know, the name of Yahweh being made known in all the earth. You know, everybody observing God's deliverance of his people and everybody is responding to it, you know, they're either responding like Amalek or Jethro. They're either saying, man, we don't like the deliverance of God and let's just, let's go after him by going after his people. Or they see it and they say, the God of this people is amazing. Like I want to give the, my entire life in gratitude to him for the kind of deliverance and grace that he shows to people. A similar sort of, thing happened in the life of C.T. Studd. Who knows who C.T. Studd is? Uh, who knows a famous quote by C.T. Studd? So now everybody knows who we're talking about. 
All right, CT stud, English guy, played cricket, gave up the cricket, missionary to, to Africa. Actually, he played, he played some cricket there. But. I think he might have also went to Africa if this uh, book that I read in his own words okay. is correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, it, it's by Norman P. Grubb, called Athlete and Pioneer, written in 1933. It's on page 16. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so his dad, Mr. Stud, his name was Edward, all right? And... Uh, Okay, Edward Studd is the famous missionary to Africa. Maybe. All right. <laughs> okay, so Studd, Edward Studd, wealthy Englishman, and, you know, his whole family lives a life of ease and entertainment until he hears D.L. Moody preach. And the man's converted under the preaching of Moody, but this happens while all of Edward's sons were away at school. They would have their kids off at school for many months. And dad becomes a Christian. And they come back home and they're, they had never known a Christian in their lives ever. And they were shocked when they came back home and recognized, you know, dad's not the same anymore. And he wants to take us to go listen to this D.L. Moody guy as well, and this is what C.T. Studd writes about that. He says, before that time, I used to think that religion was a Sunday thing, like one Sunday clothes to be put away on Monday morning. We, bo we boys were brought up to go to church regularly, but although we had a kind of religion, it didn't amount to much. Then all at once, I had the good fortune to meet a real, live Christian. It was my own father, but it did make one's hair stand on end. Everyone in the house had a dog's life out of it until they were converted. I was not altogether pleased with him. He used to come into my room at night and ask if I was converted. <laughs> you know, when you see this and, you know, the life of Edward and, you know, he, saved, he was saved and shared that personal testimony with his sons, one of them being C.T. Stud. We see that with you know, Moses and Jethro. And it's just a reminder of, you know, how can we keep from speaking of so great a salvation to tell, you know, what the Lord has done, you know, how he has delivered us. And the Lord uses that testimony of his greatness and his deliverance so that other people, let's say, you know, blessed is Jesus who delivered you from slavery to sin, Satan, and self, and who delivered you out of the, the hand of your previous life. Now I know that Jesus is greater than anything I've ever heard about. That's the kind of response that we want to hear from others and the reason that we share the great testimony of the salvation that we've received in the same redeeming Lord who was the redeemer of Moses and Jethro.
as Acts 4.12 tells us, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And you can think about how the fear of death would have controlled the Israelites in their slavery, which they were subject to all their lives until the Lord broke that slavery and delivered them. And Hebrews chapter 2 addresses this, alluding back to the Exodus event with these words. He says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So he's the one who not only breaks the master, which is Satan, but he also breaks the weapon which he has, which is death, so that you no longer fear you know, the old master or his weapon. You know, you're not fearing Satan or death. Uh, you're not subject to that slavery all of your life. You've been set free from the fear of death. And so our boast becomes, you know, not in ourselves. We don't say, you know, the Israelites couldn't say it was because of their strength that they were able to come up with some political military strategy and get out into the wilderness. You know, it was all the work of God alone, which is the same as of our salvation. And the reason somebody like Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12, you know, he's talking about, the great visions that some guy had. And he says, you know, of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will, I will not boast except in weakness. And you see, you know, the Lord didn't save me because of my strength or because of my wisdom or because of some, something I could add to him. He says, for I do, I do wish to boast, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will consider me beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. This is a reminder when you know, we're talking about telling our testimony. It's not you know, about us and what we did. You know, a lot of times in, in the sharing of a testimony, it can get so focused on you know, what you did. You know, I, I was like this, but then I did this. And then it makes it sound like, well, that's the reason that you got saved, because of you. But rather what we want to boast in is our weakness. We do want to be faithful to say that, you know, I was that, but to communicate the idea of such were some of you. But what changed me was the Lord, not that I was smart enough to, make some particular decision, but rather the Lord fixed my decisioner so that I would come to know him and follow him. Also, as Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now this is what the sons of Israel were missing at this point. You know, they, they weren't crucified to the world. You know, they wanted to be alive back in Egypt. They thought that, that that was better. Rather than just being dead to it and freed from it, they thought that's far better to be able to go back to Egypt and to have that food and that way of life. But they weren't delivered to continue to be slaves to that. They were to be crucified to that, dead to that, and raised to, to new life, free from the world and its system and the prince of the power of the air of that world, which we see God is working that kind of salvation in people like Moses, who when we read of him in the hall of faith and Hebrews, you know, he, he didn't count you know, the riches or the rapport that he could get in Egypt as anything. But he's like, the, the Messiah is worth more than all of that. And if, if I lose everything, if I lose status and stuff, I've actually lost nothing and I've, I've gained everything. Because all of that stuff is rubbish compared to the worthiness of the one who has called me to meet him out in the wilderness. The salvation of Jethro shows us that God is working out his plan for his salvation extending to the whole world. And this is you know, one of the important things we don't want to miss. Is Jethro, Jethro gets converted. God is saving people. Uh, he's, he's using Israel as a witness, even though they don't want to be that or even know that they're being that. <laughs> and this isn't just, you know, the story of the salvation of one man or one family, but it's on a larger level, a revelation of God's plan for the, the whole world, showing salvation isn't just for Moses. It's not just for Israel. But from the very beginning, God has always intended to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's what he said to Abraham. You know, if we just read the last quarter of our Bible and we see how the, the Jews misunderstood the Bible, you tend to have this uh, bad view of uh, Jews and their theology of the Old Testament because you, you assume that they just got it right. But the reality is, you know, they missed it. Gentiles were always meant to be a part of the kingdom, and uh, all of them were part Gentile in their blood somehow. <laughs> you know, they're, they're related to people like Rahab the prostitute, but you won't call her that in heaven. And if you do, who knows what she might call you. <laughs> Uh, as we read back in the Exodus 9, 16, you know, as the Lord said, indeed, for this reason, I've caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. You know, that's what our life is about, to recount God's name throughout all the earth, which is not just, you know, having a Jesus bumper sticker or T-shirt. It's not just that name, but 
you get the idea of name as we've talked about many, many times. It's not just the sound of what you call somebody, but it's about you know, their attributes and activities. It's about who God is and what he does. It's about his nature, his character, his essence. And this is something that will be fulfilled in the end. God's name will be recounted throughout all of the earth. And we see the, the praising of that reality all the way in Revelation 15. If you want to turn with me there, Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So you see that it's talking about the attributes and activities of God, you know, his, you know, who he is and what he does, that he makes himself known to all the nations, that they would be brought to bless him for his exclusive holy greatness. And that will be the end reality of all things. So where we're at in Exodus 18, it's really this hinge point from moving you know, from Egypt out to Sinai. And then chapter 19 is going to pick up on Sinai and onward to the tabernacle. And it's one of those chapters that I didn't realize how significant it was. Like you can't just skip it, skip over it. And you can't just do one message on it. You got to do two. That's why I'm doing two instead of just one. Because it's setting up for so many things and making this grand transition and connection into God's great plan of making his salvation known to the nations. But now while that's happening, you know, the big glaring problem is the sons of Israel. And that's going to be dealt with. We'll talk about that next week. Any questions or thoughts as we come to a close here? saying from the very beginning that in all practical purposes um, the people of Israel that God has delivered haven't yet had Egypt delivered out of them. Right. 
God is grafting in, like we said, God is grafting in these Gentiles to bless God, to glorify God, and yet at the same time, obviously they're fulfilling God's covenant promise to Abraham in a way that is just flying over their heads. <laughs> People that immediately are the recipients of God's blessing and deliverance. They yeah. still don't get it yet, but God is still on the move to do what He would be a promise to do. <laughs> yeah. You just kind of like, like you're reading the scripts like, what is <laughs> this? is such a final CSU part. It's, it's happening all around us. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something that Paul just figured out in Romans nine through eleven. You know, Israel, you know, rejecting God and Gentiles being grafted into the Abrahamic blessing. It's, it's like you know, if you just read your Bible in order, you see that you know that was always the plan and how it had been working out all along, and it and it wasn't some you know, mysterious or difficult thing to detect. You know, it's the it's the glaring thing that's happening. It's, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of the circumstances some of the times when, you know, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. Like, show us a sign, show us a sign. Like, what do you think I've been doing? <laughs> that sign's knocking you across the face. I mean, you know, everything that has been happening from the very beginning has been the sign of God revealing himself and showing us. Yeah. Yeah, if they won't believe Moses yeah. and the signs that he showed them, yeah. right, that, that God performed through them, it's like they won't even believe if a man's raised from the dead. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll close us in, in prayer and we can continue in our fellowship together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you save sinners like us, that you bring us into covenant relationship with you, covenants that weren't made with us, that we were strangers to them, but you have made us adopted family members unto yourself through the blood of Christ, that he would be even our elder brother. And we thank you for such a grace and to be part of your global plan of making your name known to the end of the earth, to all, throughout all the earth, to all nations. We pray that in the small way that you have ordained that we would be faithful to living for you and making you known to others to tell your testimony of what we used to be like, but what you used to open our eyes and what we saw you do in our lives and how you're currently at work and growing us and holiness and within the fellowship where we are living stones that are building up one another. We pray that you would help us in our fellowship this morning to approach one another with the attitude of servants who are for the good of edifying one another unto the good works that you have saved us to live in so that your name would be praised internationally. Amen.